Welcome back to the Durst Show. Tonight, tonight, the Celtics play the Warriors in, in game five. And having watched uh, two days of uh, so-called congressional hearings, I have one thing to say about the, the comparison. If, if, if the NBA will run the way Congress is run, and if I were the head of the NBA and I wanted to achieve a particular result, what I would do is I would send the Celtics out on the court with their great shooters, and I wouldn't allow the Warriors to get on the court. No, 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 no staff, no, you know, uh, just one side, just one side, just the Celtics. They get to shoot at will. They'll miss a few layups. They'll miss a few three-pointers, but it won't be a two-sided game. It'll just be a one-sided game. That's what the congressional hearings were about. It was one team. They're called the Democrats. Um, they include two so-called Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. And uh, they were allowed on the court and they missed a few jump shots and a few layups, but uh, nobody guarded them. Uh, <laughs> nobody had uh, defensive rebounds. Uh, nobody stole the ball. Uh, it was just a one-sided uh, show. And uh, you know, it was such a clear violation of the basic premises of our democracy to have, to have both sides presented. And then, of course, the members of the committee cheated. They presented, for example, excerpts from President Trump's speech on January 6th. Now, I don't approve of that speech. I didn't like it one bit. I wish he hadn't made it. But they left out. They doctored the tape. They edited it. They took out the crucial words where he said, I want everybody to go to the Capitol and to have your voices heard peacefully and patriotically. You can't do that. Even if the Celtics are on the court alone, if they walk or they go out of bounds or they do something wrong, they're called for it. Here there was nobody even to call the Democrats for it. If prosecutors present a case to the grand jury, no, there's no defense. It's one-sided. But if they doctor a tape and present to the grand jury a doctored, edited tape that leaves out the crucial words, that conviction is reversed. The prosecutor is disciplined, perhaps even disbarred. So what is happening today uh, in the Congressional Committee, and I speak as a liberal Democrat who voted for Joe Biden and who voted for Hillary Clinton, who twice voted against Donald Trump, who didn't agree with his speech on January 6th, who turned down the opportunity to defend him in his second impeachment because I didn't want to be in any way associated with the claim, with the claim that the election was un unfair. I believed from the day the votes were cast that Biden had won it legitimately. Were there problems with the election? Of course there were problems with the election. The uh, late votes from Pennsylvania should not have been counted as a matter of constitutional law. Article 2 uh, of the Constitution uh, does uh, require that only the state legislature can determine qualifications for voting. And in this case, the governor and the commissioners and et cetera extended the time for Voting, that was unconstitutional. I agree, but it wasn't enough votes in dispute to turn Pennsylvania around. The same thing was true in Georgia and Arizona. There were problems, but no reputable person, in, in, including the, the film about the mules, uh, has persuaded me 
that the election result in the end was wrong, that Donald Trump was elected president. No, Joe Biden was elected president. So I watched the one-sided congressional hearings. Um, They weren't particularly stimulating. There were some, obviously, some excerpts from testimony that was very persuasive. Uh, Attorney General Barr was extremely persuasive. Look, I supported Barr's nomination as attorney general over the objection of uh, some Democrats. They thought he was too much of a partisan. I've known attorney general Barr, not closely, but at a distance. I've watched him um, and I like him. And I've always thought he was an honorable and honest guy. And I believe his testimony. And if you take his testimony and the testimony of others who were in the Trump administration, you come away with three plausible conclusions. So let me go over the three conclusions. The one conclusion is uh, obviously that Biden won the election, um, that uh, Biden won Arizona by you know, three-tenths of a percent, Georgia even closer, uh, Pennsylvania close, but he won. Obviously, he won the popular vote overwhelmingly, but that doesn't matter. That's not the system. That's like judging a basketball game at the end by how many shots on the net there were. That's soccer. That's hockey. That's not, that's not basketball. And even in hockey, the games aren't determined by shots on goal. They're determined by shots in goal. So you don't change the rules. The rules are the electoral college. The electoral college clearly favors Republicans. Uh, popular vote would favor Democrats, at least for now. But we have a system. And that system is there. Jamie Raskin, my former student, wants to change the system, abolish the Electoral College, go to direct voting. You know, the Constitution is is a whole. It has a lot of checks on democracy, including the Electoral College, including two senators from each state. When the Constitution was originally written, uh, the senators were not elected. They were appointed. Um, That's changed by constitutional amendment. Other constitutional amendments change the nature of America as well. But Remember, the word democracy was never uttered at the constitutional conventions, as far as I know, or at um, any of the debates about the uh, starting of the United States. We were not a democracy. That was France. Uh, We were different. We were a republic if we could keep it. And a republic is different than a democracy. Republic, the president can't be removed except through impeachment, unlike parliamentary democracies where a president can be removed by a simple vote of no confidence. We had one last week with uh, the prime minister of England, it lost. Um, we've had them in Israel. We've had them in many other countries. But, okay, conclusion one, and I think it's a correct conclusion. I've always thought it was a correct conclusion. Joe Biden won the presidency. He is the legitimately elected president of the United States. I know a lot of my viewers will disagree with that. I've gotten a lot of letters. I'm telling you the conclusions that I think the committee reached. And I think that was the right conclusion. The second conclusion is that almost all of Trump's cabinet members, immediate advisors, family members, all told him that in the end, Biden won the election, that the claim of election fraud sufficient to determine and change the outcome of the election was wrong. Uh, Obviously, Barr used the more colorful phrase, bullshit. He said it was bullshit. But then we come to three, and what Barr and others also said, and that is that President Trump believed that he had won the election. He believed 
that the election was stolen from him and that nobody could shake him of that belief. Do you think so? It's an interesting question. We'll never know for sure. Nobody can ever get into the inside of the brain of a president or anybody else. Obviously, there are ways of doing it. If he had confided in somebody and said to Jared or his daughter, look, I know I lost the election, but I might be able to retain the presidency if I do A, B, C, and D. There's no evidence of that. That would be the smoking gun. Absent that smoking gun, it's really difficult to know what Donald Trump believed. I have to tell you what I think. I think Donald Trump believed he had won the election. Um, I think that Rudy Giuliani probably believed it as well. Whether these folks talked themselves into it, persuaded themselves, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. My wife, she's the PhD in, in, in psychology in the family, and I go to her for that kind of advice. But based on my amateurish uh, analysis of Trump and my knowledge of him, after all, I did, I did speak to him on a number of occasions uh, in the Oval Office and even before he was uh, president. I, I don't know him well, but I know him well enough to, I think, be able to make a determination. I think he believed and still believes that he won the election. So we have three conclusions. He lost. All of his advisors told him he lost. And he believes he won. So what should he have done under those circumstances? We've all been in situations where we believe something, other people don't believe it, and we turn out to be right. I'm, I'm always told that the reason Jews are so argumentative and never give up is because for 2,000 years, they told us we killed Jesus. We used to kill little Christian babies and use their blood to bake our matzahs. Everybody in Europe believed that. And they were all wrong. And they were all wrong. And we fought against that. So, you know, Jews have this thing of, we don't necessarily believe what, what people tell us. Uh, lawyers have a little of that too. Non-Jewish lawyers as well as Jewish lawyers. And, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes... When I think about my cases, I, I, I sometimes make a comparison. Look, the woman who accused me of, of having sex with her, I didn't know her. I never heard of her, never met her, never had any contact with her. And her lawyers know that. They have to know it. I have one of them on tape saying she's wrong, simply wrong. But she believes it. But she believes it. What should a lawyer do under those circumstances? If he knows, David Boy's knows with 100% certainty, he told me so, that I never had any contact with Virginia Goofer. He knows it, but he may believe, I'm not sure whether he does or not, he may believe that she believes it. I don't believe she believes it. I can't believe she believes it. The evidence is so overwhelming that I never met her, I never saw her. But it raises a similar kind of issue. What if lawyers do believe and their clients do believe, but it turns out to be wrong? Should lawyers be disciplined for that? Giuliani is being disciplined for that. Other lawyers are being disciplined for that. There are, um, there are some now allegations or uh, assumptions that Donald Trump should be tried and convicted of some kind of crimes for 
what he did, but what if he believed it? If he believed it, is it a crime to fight for what you believe in? Is it a crime to ask your lawyers to go to court and to uh, leave no stone unturned and make sure that every single issue is litigated, even if you've lost 62 out of 62 cases, most of them, by the way, without a hearing, without any opportunity to present evidence, do you give up? My reputation as a lawyer is I never give up. I never give up. I can have 15 courts say my client is guilty. I'm going to still persist on arguing innocence if I think there's any plausible claim of innocence. You might say that's different because there's no plausible claim of innocence in the Trump case. Well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen the movie, The Thousand Mules, whatever movie, but people tell me there's some evidence there. And even Barr spoke about that today. He said he wasn't convinced, even though there was some um, uh, evidence. Um, I, I am involved in another lawsuit involving Dominion, the, the vote counting machines, and they won't produce their algorithms. They're suing my client for defamation. And then when my client says, hey, uh, I don't believe the machines are accurate. I think they're capable of fraud. We say, well, show us the algorithms. Let's have an expert examine. No, 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 no. We're willing to sue you, but we're not willing to show you evidence that your client isn't right. These are very complicated and difficult issues. And, and, and we shouldn't be doing what the congressional committee is doing thinking that it's entirely one-sided. It's such an insult to millions and millions and millions of Americans. Millions of millions of Americans believe there was something wrong with the election. I think they're wrong. And I would like to talk to them and tell them that they're wrong. But they think they're right. And cutting them off and, and just calling them fools and threatening people who even raise the issue with disbarment that's not the democratic way. The democratic way is to answer in the marketplace of ideas, to present two sides of the issue. As I've said over and over again, there never should have been congressional hearings of this kind on so divisive an issue. There should have been a commission like the 9-11 commission. Look, I, the Republicans didn't want it. I'm not a Republican. They were wrong. They should have had it. It would have been better for the country, better for the Republicans, better for the Democrats. If there had been a 9-11 type commission, not with people like Schiff and, and, and others uh, on it who are partisans, but people who are nonpartisan, experts, uh, people who have vast experience in elections, looking at the machines, being given access to the algorithms that Dominion uses, uh, seeing that film, interviewing the filmmaker. Let's prove our case. Let's not just claim that there's nothing to it. And, and so I think the hearings do a disservice to uh, Americans. They do a disservice to the adversary process. They do a disservice to hearing all sides of every issue, you're not going to persuade the millions of people who have doubts by, by, a, by a kangaroo court show like this put on by a former ABC uh, a producer. And uh, it's just not going to work. 
and it's not going to achieve the results you want it to achieve. We, the American public, are entitled to know everything, everything, the good, the bad, the indifferent. The election was not perfect. No election ever has been. The Kennedy-Nixon election, the first election I participated in as a 21-year-old, first-time voter, you had to be 21 in the day, not 18, was a questionable election. There were real doubts about how Illinois, West Virginia, and some other states had gone. Nixon, who I certainly have very little good to say about, was a gentleman. He, he, he conceded, even though he thought possibly he had won. Al Gore conceded when he shouldn't have conceded. Um, I have to tell you, I was pro bono counsel to the voters of Palm Beach County, and I did an investigation on their behalf, not on behalf of Al Gore, on behalf of the Palm Beach voters. And I came to the conclusion that many hundreds, perhaps thousands of votes were miscast, that they were intended to be for Gore and they were counted for Bush. How did it happen? You may remember this, the butterfly ballot. It was an illegal ballot. It put the holes in the wrong place so that the predominantly Jewish voters of certain sections of Palm Beach County mistakenly thought they were voting for Joe Lieberman, the first Jew ever to be on a national ballot. And when they punched that hole of Joe Lieberman, it was, in fact, a hole for Pat Buchanan, an anti-Semite, anti-Israel, somebody that no legitimate Jew would ever vote for. But he got enormous number of votes in this Jewish community that were intended, obviously, for Gore and Lieberman. But Al Gore didn't want to pursue that. He didn't pursue that. It was a mistake. He should have pursued it. And um, I believe that Al Gore got that more people intended to vote for Al Gore and thought they cast their vote for Al Gore than for, for Bush in the 2000 election in Florida. I'm convinced that I wrote a book about it. It's called Supreme Injustice. Am I to be castigated? Am I to be attacked because... I cast doubt on, on the election. Some of the judges said, oh, lawyers should never cast doubt on the elections because that diminishes the faith that Americans have. It's exactly the opposite. If you're not entitled to cast doubt on an election, you're in Putin's Russia. In America, we are entitled to cast doubt on elections. And we're entitled to be nuanced. We're entitled to say, as I've said, Pennsylvania made a constitutional error. Not enough to change the outcome of the election but it was a constitutional era. Arizona, Georgia, Dominion, these are issues that ought to be looked at closely. Was there fraud? Of course, there was some fraud. Has there ever been an election that didn't have some fraud? Was it enough to determine the outcome of the election? I don't think so, but I want to be able to persuade every American of that. And you're not going to do it by these kind of phony congressional hearings. You only do it if you have an expert commission. Now, look, not all expert commissions work. Um, I was also involved in the formulation of the Warren Commission. I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court when President Kennedy was killed. And I was offered an opportunity to serve, to work on the Warren uh, Commission. And my justice, who I was clerking for, said, Alan, don't do it. Don't serve on the Warren Commission. It's not going to be a credible commission because everybody wants a particular outcome. Everybody wants everybody else to believe 
that Russia was not in any way involved. And Goldberg said, look, I have no idea whether Russia was involved. Probably it wasn't. But even if it was, the commissioners, Earl Warren, who he knew very well, would not find that because it would be warmongering. It would create the risk of a war, a nuclear war with Russia. So it was in everybody's interest to conclude that the shot was fired by one person, Grassy Knoll, all that kind of stuff. Does the Warren Commission today have credibility? I think it was Woody Allen. We talked about someday there'd be a nonfiction version of the Warren Report. Uh, so, you know, we're still critical of, of the Warren Commission, but almost nobody is critical of the 9-11 Commission. That worked. That worked because we really wanted to get at the truth there. We really wanted to find out what happened. It was a nonpartisan commission. It was an attack on the heart and soul of the United States uh, in, in, in New York City. And everybody had the same motive to get to the right, truthful result. Whereas the Warren Commission, there was an agenda. This congressional hearing, there's more than an agenda. There is a partisan political goal to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't run again, or if he runs, is decisively defeated. That's not the appropriate function of a congressional hearing. So again, you know, I'm going to get criticism from all sides, the, um, the, the pro-Trump who, people who don't believe that uh, there was a fair election are going to attack me for that. The, the, the Democrats are going to attack me for raising questions about whether it was a perfect election or whether Pennsylvania was correct. Hey, that's my job. That's my life. That's my identity. I'll never be liked by both sides. I'm always going to search for truth. I always like nuance. I'm always going to look for uh, a credible solution that doesn't satisfy either side. So if you don't like that approach, there are other podcasts. If you like that approach, keep listening, keep watching, and keep writing to me. Speaking of writing, let me turn to some letters now. Now, I spoke, of course, about the Johnny uh, Depp uh, case the other day and about the Me Too movement. So some of the letters, uh, we'll start with those. Women, like their male counterparts, are only human, some in the very worst way. So look, men and women are exactly the same. The same ratio of lying, the same ratio of telling the truth the same ratio of jealousy, the same ratio of you name it, anything. There are no differences of that kind that could justify this crazy notion that women must be believed and men must be disbelieved. That's sexism. That's bigotry. It's wrong. Um, another one about that. I doubt the depth verdict will end the Me Too movement, but it should make people pause before reflexively believing the woman in every case. Now, my next letter writer, of course, doesn't take that into account. He says, why is this disgusting pedophile been given a platform? Pedophiles deserve the death penalty. Well, have you been listening to the evidence? Nobody has ever accused me. Nobody has ever accused me of being a pedophile, obviously. Even the woman who falsely accused me uh, has admitted that she was you know, way, way above age when she falsely claims that uh, she voluntarily had sex with me. So, you know, you want to call me a pedophile. That's your First Amendment right. If you do it in, in a public way with your name, real name, uh, this name was Judy 0007. Um, 
you know, I, you may very well get a summons uh, the next day and find out that you're on the wrong side of a defamation suit uh, for calling me a pedophile. That's my right under the First Amendment to fight back against maliciously false charges. Okay. Alan, is Chuck Schumer responsible for inciting an apparent assassination attempt on Justice Kavanaugh? Will you condemn his rhetoric on the courthouse steps, promising that Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch have reaped the whirlwind and will pay the price, and even further said they won't know what hit them or something like that. If uh, he issues a ruling that Schumer doesn't like, if Mitch McConnell said the same thing about Justice Ginsburg, would you feel differently? If you'd watch my show, or if you'd listen to me, you know I've condemned Chuck Schumer, who I've known for years and years and years since he was a student at Harvard Law School. I've condemned him for that speech. Um, I think it was a dog whistle. I don't think he intended it to be a provocation to that uh, horrible young man who was caught outside of Kavanaugh's house. No, I, I don't think that. But uh, I think it was a dog whistle. I, and I think he should have known better, just like President Trump should have known better when he spoke in, in Charlottesville, that people would listen to him. And not that he intended it, but come away with impressions different from what he intended. The same thing is true of President Trump's January 6th speech. When you're in a position of authority like Schumer or Trump, watch your words, because there will be people out there who will interpret them in the worst possible way. So yes, I condemn Chuck Schumer for what he said in front of the uh, Supreme Court, but no, he's not guilty of incitement. Uh, I would defend him if he were charged with incitement. He won't be charged with incitement. Okay, let's see what else we have today. Um, we have, Professor, is a gag order constitutional? Does Peter Navarro case qualify for a case where a gag order can be legally used? I don't favor gag orders. I'm totally against them. I think they should almost never be used, and they're almost never constitutional. Obviously, if there's uh, somebody who has the nuclear codes uh, that could set off uh, a third world war, a gag order would be appropriate as if the person would comply with the gag order. But I don't like gag orders. Uh, I think they're used too frequently just to protect people, um, reputation, etc. And they're used very, very selectively. So I don't think they're proper in the Navarro case or any case like that. Yo, Alan, I'm a fan who's bought and read some of your books. I always admired your intellectual honesty until now. It escapes me entirely how you can believe the 2020 presidential election was honest. The Dominion machines were designed to facilitate election fraud. Look, I believe they were honest. I do want to see the election machines. I do want to see, and my client wants to see, the uh, what's inside those machines. But I do believe the election uh, was honest. N many of the electronic votes were backed up by hand ballots that were counted by hand, and they did support uh, the results in this case. That doesn't mean that Dominion should continue to have the same influence it has on elections. I don't think it should um, until they're ready to publicly disclose their 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 technology so that experts can look at it and see whether it's true that they were, quote, designed to facilitate election fraud, whether in fact there's been any election fraud. So far, what I've seen suggests that we need to know a lot more and that there should be a full and open disclosure and investigation of how these machines work and whether they're capable of fraud. Okay. 
getting back to basketball for a second, Bill Russell was my all-time favorite player. I can't say I'm not jealous of you seeing him play live. Wait till you hear about my relationship with Bill Russell. I not only saw him play live, I had lunch with him at a Chinese restaurant in Harvard Square. I'll never forget. There was me, him, and his daughter, who was either then applying or had been admitted to Harvard Law School. And I knew Bill Russell through Red Auerbach a little bit. So he called me and we we had uh, lunch in this Chinese restaurant. And I ordered my usual favorite dish of string beans or something like that. And uh, his daughter ordered uh, a nice dish. And then he ordered um, three main courses. I said, our, our, Bill, all right, what, we're going to share them? No, we're going to share them. I have three main courses. I'm six foot nine and I weigh so and so pounds. Six, I eat six. six, six, my son corrects me. He had arms like he was six nine. I think I disagree with my son. I think he was six eight or six seven, but we'll, we, we'll resolve that afterward by a Google search. <laughs> but in any event, his arms were like he was eight feet tall. The guy was a phenomenal basketball player. When he walked onto the court, the other team just gave up. He stood there and he blocked shots. He invented essentially the current, the modern fast break. He would catch the rebound and the outlet passes would be unbelievable. And he was also a remarkable, remarkable human being. And uh, I have a lot of memorabilia from him. I have a chair from the old Boston Garden signed by Bill Russell. Uh, I have a baseball signed by Bill Russell. And of course, I have a basketball signed by Bill Russell. So Bill Russell has always been one of my heroes. His daughter, Karen, is a terrific, terrific woman. She did go to Harvard Law School, did very well. And I got to know her uh, there. So uh, those days, uh, back the Celtics, I had season tickets, I think longer than almost anybody else. I, I started going to Celtics games around 1964. I think I got my season tickets in 67. Um, they still exist. Um, my secretary uses them mostly. Um, and I went to Celtics games regularly until I re retired from Harvard uh, in 1960. Listed uh, sorry, at 6'10". It, it, oh, he, he was 6'10". All right. Listed at 6'10". All right. My, my son doubts it. But I, I retained my season tickets and went to games through the time I retired at the end of 2014. I think I haven't been to a game since. And if there is a game seven, it will be away. So I don't think I'm making the trip in for game seven. But uh, here I am tonight. I'm all dressed. I'm in uniform, rooting for, for, my, for my Celtics. Um, um, uh, as I said the other day, game four is always the most important game. If the Celtics had won game four, they'd have a 95% chance of winning going all the way. If you lose game four in a two-to-one series that you're up two-to-one and against two-to-two, you're then at about 45%. So game four is clearly the most important game other than game seven, obviously, in any seven-game series. But uh, my son, my wife, and I will be sitting glued to the television set tonight and cheering mightily for Go Celtics. See you tomorrow.